0: Hello and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy. And if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Hey,
1: Jasmine. Hi. Hey, hi, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, really excited to hear all about your experiences in tech, how you got here and all the awesome work that you're doing. Um, so I'll start off by quickly introducing myself and then we can get right into it. So my name is Neha. I work at Grubhub as a data scientist in the research and experimentation team. Before this, I was within the financial services industry for about four and a half years doing data science uh, and to some extent, A/B testing and experimentation. And I am here um, as part of the women who go data science track. And Jasmine is working for Cash App as the head of technical program management. And before that, she was at Facebook, Airbnb, and Texas Instruments, and she loves problem solving. With that, uh, I welcome you, Jasmine, to kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. So like like Sneha just said, I love solving problems. That's actually why I left my prior job at, at Airbnb and came over here. Um, because my now boss basically sold me on all of the exciting challenges and, and interesting problems that we are trying to, to solve for here at, at Cash App.
1: Awesome. That sounds so cool. So I uh, observed that uh, you worked at all these different technology companies and you actually have a bachelor's degree in computer science, uh, followed by a master's degree. Uh, I think in engineering, uh, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so, I am curious uh, to know what motivated you to pursue those uh, areas within academia and then how you got into technology. What was your motivation? How Did you know this was going to be your career path when you took up uh, a bachelor's degree in computer science?
2: Right. Well, so I have to give a lot of credit to my mom. And if she's watching this, she's, she's going to be quite pleased. Cause I don't say this to her enough. Um, I was raised in, in Japan where I had a six day, like school week. So I, I went to school Monday through Saturday and I was accustomed to only having one, one day of rest. And when we moved back here, as you know like we have a two-day weekend so i was quite bored on on saturdays and <laughs> my mom kind of forced me to go into this uh math and science like after school or like weekend program uh called called mesa it was put on by by uc berkeley and there was one day that someone came in and they brought in like these circuit boards and robots And I had no clue what any of this stuff was, but I loved it. So ever since then, in the sixth grade, I knew that I wanted to to pursue a career where I could do this every single day. Um, But it wasn't until like my second year of college that I finally discovered, oh, this is the type of of engineering that I wanted. So I pursued electrical and computer um, engineering. And I loved it so much that I graduated and went right back to school and got my master's. Um, and I just started, I've been working in tech ever since then.
1: That is such a cool story. Uh, and I would do want to point out that I grew up in India and we had a six-day work week too. So it was quite different when I moved here and I noticed how the weekend is much longer than what I had seen. So I totally get that part where, you know, you need something extra to do over the weekend. And I yeah. think mom found the perfect <laughs> activity to fill <pull> up <laughs> for Saturday and it was a great marriage since you love problem solving anyway. Yeah.
2: Thanks mom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't tell her that I she <laughs> think that I, I don't appreciate her taking up my Saturday, but no, that was a really good
1: thing. It was. Okay, so I then want to talk about a little bit more into how you transitioned from a super tech-heavy role um, in Texas Instruments Mm -hmm. over to a more internet company uh, type of environment. Uh, Maybe you can point us out towards how that transition happened, what motivated Mm -hmm. you to move from there?
2: Yeah, so that happened by accident, really. Um, I was doing kind of the same thing every single day. Uh, Texas Instruments was a very uh, power electronics heavy type type of field, and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool, but like it's kind of the same thing. And I think that there might be more out there, maybe. And I was just approached by, by Facebook at the, the perfect time, right? When I was thinking that maybe I want to try something new, but I was very scared at first. Like Facebook is a huge name and I'm thinking, why would Facebook be interested in me? Like this is a, yeah. the, probably one of the biggest tech companies ever. And they're talking to me like, this is weird. Um, and I was talking about this with one of my friends and she kept saying the same piece of advice that I repeat to everyone, which is you have to at least try, you're going to hate yourself if you don't try. Um, and so I took a leap of faith and I was like, you know what? Facebook is big to where if I decide that this first team just isn't a good fit, I'm sure I can go elsewhere. Um. But I had to at least try. And I feel like if, if you jump, you're going to land somewhere. So make the jump. And I'm really glad that I did. I learned so much at Facebook. People who have worked at Facebook or people who are still working at Facebook will definitely uh, echo this. You will learn a lot. And I, the uh, work habits that I learned from, from Facebook are things that I still lean on to this day. Um, And I'm really happy that I listened and I took that that leap of faith.
1: So uh, Jasmine, I noticed that you mentioned you feeling a little bit scared uh, before joining or at the time of joining Facebook, Mm -hmm. uh, it being such a big company, one of the biggest in the world, especially in the field of technology companies today, I think. Um, And there is this notion of people feeling like they don't deserve to be where they are or they're not good enough. Um, And a lot of people refer to it as imposter syndrome. So I'm curious to know if you experienced that over the course of the years, across your various experiences and how did you cope with it?
2: Yeah, imposter syndrome is a big thing. Um, I don't think it ever goes away completely. But there are ways that you can sort of talk to it and, and minimize it. When I joined Facebook, yeah, I was definitely like, I shouldn't be here. They picked the wrong person. And then I had to sort of pause and think about just the entire interview process. Like, I mean, I thought that I was really smart. I still think that I'm pretty smart, but I don't think that I was smart enough to fool all of those people into picking me when really they shouldn't have. So I think if people are feeling imposter syndrome, think back to your, your interview process. You're not just talking to one person and then getting hired. You're talking to a panel. And before you're talking to that that panel, you're probably having to, to do like a pure coding exercise, right? It's the same process at pretty much every tech company everywhere, you're not going to be smart enough to fool all of those people. And then when you are are actively working and imposter syndrome starts to to come up and make you feel, I don't know, uncomfortable, it's important to to pause and think about why is this coming up? Is it because Mm -hmm. I feel like I didn't take enough notes or I really didn't do as much background reading as I probably should have? And if that's the case, then just take more notes, do more background research. Um, Just like there there are actionable things that you can probably do to make that voice not as loud. And if you're really stuck, right, if imposter syndrome is still there and you're still feeling like, oh, no, someone's going to uncover that I really don't know what I'm doing. Oh, no, help reach out to your mentors, right? Like that's why they're there. And you should hopefully have a a mentor-mentee relationship where you can just go and say, I'm feeling this way about this thing. What am I missing? And they should be able to tell you quite bluntly what you're missing. Or in my experience, they've all said, you're not missing anything. Just relax. Like you're fine. And sometimes it does take like a third voice to like come in and tell you you're fine for you to like stop listening to this negative self-talk that's telling you that you're not fine. Yeah. So my my mentorship thing is not part of like cash's official mentorship thing because I just feel like that's too official and like there's just way too much pressure because then you have to like submit notes and like other people are kind of like in in your business and I don't I, I don't want that. So I meet with my my mentors uh, once a month at the most some of them i meet maybe once a quarter and like that varies like we can switch it up if i feel like i need more more insight or more context then i'll start meeting with them more more often but once a month at the absolute most just to keep just to keep things fun and lighthearted um and not put too much pressure because no one has time to like add a whole bunch of people on like a, a weekly basis like that's way too much in my opinion
1: no that makes total sense
2: um but yeah imposter syndrome I don't think it goes away it hasn't for me I've been working for about what 15 years and I still have it even now sometimes but you can definitely like learn to stop listening to it
1: I think that's a really interesting take on imposter syndrome about how you can kind of accept that maybe it doesn't fully go away and that's okay uh, and you have all these different coping mechanisms or, mm-hmm. or methods of telling yourself that maybe, maybe you do deserve to be there and uh, all of the great Uh, pointers that you mentioned that's really interesting and I find that super helpful for myself also because I I have that imposter syndrome Mm. too (laughs) very very helpful Um, and I know you touched upon mentorship there which I want to get to in a second but before that uh, I'm really curious to learn more about the exciting opportunity that Mm. brought you to Cash App And um, maybe you can share some cool things about your work there. Yeah.
2: What brought me to Cash App? What stole me away from Airbnb into Cash App? The mission. Number one, like I love their mission around economic empowerment and making money more um, rel- relatable, right? There are a ton of people that don't actively per- participate in the fi- financial marketplace because they feel like like they can't, right? There's people that believe that they can't buy stock if they don't have a bank, or that in order to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, they have to somehow have thousands or, or, or millions of dollars just just sitting there. There's probably people that don't realize that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy a fraction. Um, and just being able to get that, that information out there and that, that opportunity is amazing. And I love being a part of a company who pushes for just that. If you have a cell phone, you can have Bitcoin. You can have stocks. You can do all of these things that that people think that you can't. Um, And I love that. The second thing are the people, of course, Um, the transparency, the the trust, all of that. During my interview process, I was blown away at how open and and transparent my now boss was at the interview phase. Like I'm not even working here and (laughs) you're being very open. That is fantastic. And you're trusting me without having signed like a non-disclosure, you're trusting me with this this information, that's unheard of, like this is great. Um, And now that I am officially here, that culture is still very, very strong. Like people are very open and very transparent. Everyone wants to help. We all want to to do the right thing. Um, And even though Cash App is growing, we are growing um, at a rate where we are making sure that company culture is maintained. And I love that. It would be so easy to just let's hire everyone, but then it gets harder to make sure that the right company culture is propagated through. Um, And instead of just opening like the hiring floodgates, we are being very careful in who we bring on. And I think that's going to make us go even further than we would be able to if we just hired everyone.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think you pointed out uh, how aligning with the mission, or rather believing in the mission of the company, Mm -hmm. team, uh, and really aligning with the culture is so important uh, in being happy about uh, working for a company and working towards uh, a common mission, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's just uh, right on the spot. I totally agree with you there. Uh, and it's great that you, that you found that kind of trust and uh, such people and openness uh, at Cash App. What I want to kind of uh, go from here is there over the course of years through your experiences, has there ever been, ever been a time where you had maybe a difference of opinion or a conflict with a key stakeholder or maybe your manager? Mm -hmm. Um, and how did you handle those situations?
2: Yeah. Disagreements happen and they are going to, I mean, (laughs) I would be lying if I said no disagreements. (laughs) Everyone believes the same thing. No disagreements happen. So when they happen, not if, when they happen, I think it's super important to, to be very blunt, very facts driven, very transparent but also open and, and receptive to how the other person is going to respond. It's important to look at facts. Don't look at how something is being said, look at what's being said, but also understand that we all want the same thing. We are going about it very different ways, but at the end of the day, we want the same goal. And I feel like once you keep that like in the forefront of, of your mind, it becomes a lot easier to identify where this conflict is coming from. Um, Most times it's over a a disagreement. Other times it might be over the fact that someone maybe is is under pressure to like assert themselves a certain way, but none of that really matters if the end goal is still met. So I like to, to be the person that's kind of like, I only care that we get to the the right finish place, right? I don't care if we have to go left, right and make a U-turn, right? I would prefer that we just go straight, but if it's better for for you and your teams to go and do these other things and budget is not affected, our timeline is not really affected, then fine, because we're still getting the same end goal. Um, And that's how I approach every conflict, every disagreement. It's also important to already like accept the fact that nothing is going to be as straightforward as you think it should be. There's always going to be something. So when you're kind of like not looking for it, but when you're like accepting it, accepting that the things may go left, then when they do, you're not surprised. And I think you're, you're better able to run with it.
1: Awesome. I think you're sharing some really (laughs) valuable pointers here, and uh, that's, I think, a really, really uh, great perspective on conflicts and how to handle those. I'm sure that comes through uh, with a lot of uh, experience and (laughs) time spent working through and working around these uh, sort of situations. So thank you for that. Yeah, no Um, worries i want to go back to the mentorship um, aspect that you brought mm-hmm. up earlier um personally for me uh, i've always uh, wondered like what is the best way of establishing a mentor mentee relationship uh, i've often found that it's it can get awkward and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you know i don't even know what the right approach is should i just go up to somebody and say, hey, can you be my mentor? I I don't know. So can you share um, maybe an approach that you uh, used and you found helpful, or you have anything you can prescribe on how people can go about it?
2: Absolutely. Um, So I actually believe that there is no non-awkward way to ask someone (laughs) if they want to be your mentor. So just be awkward. And I feel like people are more receptive of the fact that you're comfortable enough to be awkward, right? Um, What I usually do is just, I pick the most awkward way that I can. And that has always worked out well for me. Like I will literally go up to someone and say, hey, I wanna be like you when I grow up. And I feel like people laugh because they're caught off guard and they're like, okay, cool, sure. Um, It helps if you do have like maybe one or two specific things that you like about that person that you want to like uh, steal or use or incorporate is probably the better word um, into your practice, right? Like there's this this guy that I asked a couple of weeks ago. Um, I really liked how he asked very blunt questions in a very non-blunt way that wasn't too abrasive, but was still pretty like, whoa, he asked that question. And I, I basically just said, I like the way you ask questions. I want to be like you when I grow up. And now we, we meet like once a month and we just talk about asking questions. And he's actually been at the company. He was one of like the founding engineers, I think. So Amazing, I'm like, I wanna learn how to ask questions, but I'm also learning about a lot of the historical context and I'm getting introduced to all these different people that I probably would not have met otherwise. So there's a lot of benefit that comes from allowing yourself to be awkward for a quick second. And I encourage everyone, do it. It's going to be
1: awkward, do it anyway. (laughs) I think that's solid advice. And I am going to steal your pointer about having one or two specific things that you admire or you um, kind of aspire to have in your own um, practice Hmm. and then approaching them with that. I think I I really like that uh, approach. So thank you. Uh, Like I said, Jasmine, I think you've shared a lot of amazing tips and um, pointers for for us based on your uh, great experience through different companies over the period of time uh what i want to do um as a last part of this is to get like a pro tip for you from you for all of us here
2: pro tip um yeah have fun you gotta have fun i mean in Engineering and computer science, like this was meant for people to have fun with, like you're working in teams, you're working with different d- disciplines, have fun. I don't think, I don't think any tech company was founded by people not having fun. I think like Facebook started because they wanted to have fun and connect people. Instagram, Airbnb, we, we want more fun places for people to, to live, Cash App, let's give money, fun. Um, If you're not having fun, you might want to switch it up a little bit. And that could mean various different things like adding some flair to your workspace or I don't know, like adding a movie reference to the next email that you have to send Mm -hmm. out or put like a really funny GIF or something. Um, Take up an extra project because it's fun, but like let fun be the thing that guides you. Like you're, you're going to be doing this for a very long time. Um, I think it's rare for anyone in in, in this industry to only work a 40 hour work week, especially now. And if you're not having fun, like, what are you doing? (laughs) So just have
1: fun. Awesome. I love your pro tip. And I think this conversation was super fun. So thank you for taking the time and sharing all these wonderful experiences with us. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. This was fun.
0: In the Women Who Code career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real-world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices.
3: Qualified women of color in tech are hard to find. That is a common statement and major issue. Why is that? Do qualified women of color in tech exist? I'm a former computer programmer, consultant, and certified computer examiner. I've programmed multi million dollar systems for major corporations. I'm even a woman of color in tech if you hadn't noticed. As I progressed in my two decade career, I was often the only woman of color in rooms, on projects, and in the tech department. In 1989, I attended the university to study computer science. At that time, there was a small number of universities that actually offered a degree in computer science. According to According to computerscience.org in 1984, the number of women who earned computer science degrees peaked at 37%. At that same time, black women who held computer science degrees was less than 8%, according to the National Science Foundation. I wasn't aware of any women in tech, especially not women of color. I wanted to be part of what I thought then was an elite few. I soon learned that women of color in tech were elite because of being overlooked due to the barriers that they face causing many to leave the technology profession. In my career, I've been underpaid, overlooked for promotions and experienced racism. I never thought 30 years later women of color in tech will be facing these same obstacles. Now, I can in no way speak on every obstacle that women of color in tech will face, but it is my hope by the end of this talk you will, one, understand the biases that women of color in tech face, two, commit to hiring women of color in tech, and three, learn how to retain and promote women of color in tech. Today, the world is focusing on becoming diverse and inclusive, but it's troubling that in a day and age of augmented reality, artificial intelligence and other technical advances, the women in color of tech are a small percentage of the profession. According to statista.com in 2020, women of color accounted for approximately 12% of the computing and mathematical workforce in the United States. Of the women of color in tech, they're often overlooked. So who are the women of color in the tech industry? Women of color are the underrepresented minorities. Now, underrepresentation varies across the computing context. But for this talk, I'm focusing on black or African-American, Hispanic or Latinx, Native American and Alaskan Native women of color who are overlooked across the tech pipelines. So companies say, we can't find a qualified woman of color in tech. Or they say, we're trying. The truth of the matter is companies are looking with blinders on. They go to elite schools to recruit the demographic of candidates who they always have, or they overlook women of color who enter the interviewing process because she failed to exceed the stated requirements for the job. In January of 2000, I interviewed for a computer analyst position with one of the United States' largest utility companies. The interview was going well as I confidently answered the questions being thrown at me by the two white men in the room and I was able to showcase my technical knowledge. At that time I had I had about 10 years of technical experience. At the conclusion of the interview, one of the men who would eventually become my manager stated that he would have to verify that The school where I attained my computer science degree was accredited because he hadn't heard of it. That shocked me and gave me pause. I never had a job before that one or after that one say such a thing to me, at least not to my face. I immediately thought, Why would he think the school that I attended wasn't accredited? Did this man know of every university that existed? Did he question the degree accreditation of every job applicant or me, because I was a woman of color who hadn't attended an elite university, but instead an HBCU. And for those of you who don't know, HBCU stands for historically black college and university. According to builtin.com, African-American and Latinx women who have computing or engineering degrees are less likely to be hired in a tech role than their white counterparts. What gave me pause about what that gentleman said was I was thinking about not being hired for a position because the person in the interviewing process hadn't heard of my school. Then I began to wonder, had that happened to me before? Have you or someone you know overlooked a woman of color candidate because she didn't fit inside your box of standards? Unfair hiring practices are one form of bias that women of color in tech face. According to builtin.com, now, 3% of computed related jobs are held by African-American women. 2% are held by Latinx women. Now, interesting enough, when I was doing my research, I couldn't find any current statistics for Native American or Alaskan Native women in tech. This truly emphasized how women of color in tech are overlooked because there are Native American and Alaskan Native women in tech. Women of color in tech are intimidating to their male counterparts. We attend meetings and are made to feel like we don't belong, our input isn't valued, and we aren't given assistance when we seek out help. When, when women of color are overlooked, it just it degrades and makes women of color feel like we don't belong. When I began working at the utility company, the second gentleman in the interview ended up being my coworker. He and I were supposed to support one of the major systems in the company. He was supposed to mentor and train me. Despite me sitting next to him and asking him questions, he refused to mentor or train me. When he answered my questions, he gave me that. You are an idiot look of irritation. He made it very clear that he would not train me so that I could take the position that he had held for years. It was very stressful working with someone who didn't want me around. I felt like I was being set up for failure. I remember going to my manager crying and telling him how I wanted to do a good job, but how it was very difficult when the person assigned to be my trainer didn't want to train me. My manager basically told me to suck it up because that's how my coworker was. I was dismissed. This is an example of the lack of support and mentorship that women of color face in the white male tech industry. I taught myself what did I needed to learn in every tech position. I bought myself books to keep up my coding skills. I financially invested in courses on new technologies to enhance my career. And in my position with the utility company, I would receive 1 a.m. phone calls when the system had problems. I would work to resolve those problems at home or by going to the office in the early morning hours as necessary. I ensured every system would run on schedule. Women of color in tech put their all in what they do, but they feel like I did not valued, often questioning. Do I really belong here? (sighs) When you are a woman of color in tech, you are very aware that you have to be smarter and work harder. Not only will you face gender bias, but also racial bias. You show up every day and you work hard and then you quickly realize that you are underpaid. When asking for a raise, you are given every excuse in the book on why you won't receive one. Even being told, your performance is lacking. Try harder. You're even given a false sense of hope by being told, maybe next year a pay raise will be considered. Unfair pay practices are blatant for women of color in tech. For every dollar that a white man in tech earned in 2020, African-American or Latinx women in that same role only earned 90 cents. Yeah, think about that. If you are a woman of color in tech, can you recall a time when you were overlooked? we're all familiar with the term glass ceiling when it comes to advancing in our career. So let me move out the way. So the glass ceiling is a barrier that you encounter when you are in the tech industry, when you are climbing up for success. Now you can see through it, You can see what's possible, but did you also know that there is a concrete ceiling? Now, the concrete ceiling exists for women of color in tech. Now, imagine Climbing a career ladder and coming to a point where you get to a point in your career where you can't see through it, you can't push, you can't shatter it. But then you realize that there is no possibility for your advancement. This type of discrimination is An example of the lack of mentorship and support that women of color in tech face when they aren't given the same opportunities, tools, and training to be as competitive as their white female and male counterparts. Now, the concrete ceiling in the workplace, along with the lack of mentors, sponsors, and promotions, are reasons why women of color in tech leave the industry. We we feel like we don't belong. We start to question ourselves. So then we eventually take our skills and our expertise to friendlier industries. So women of color in tech are tired of the microaggressions, the unconscious bias, and the lack of representation that we have to endure on a daily basis. So how can this all change? Well, start with the recruiting process. In addition to the normal places of recruitment, companies must be committed and sincere with recruiting from HBCUs, Hispanic-serving institutions, and other institutions which they wouldn't have normally even thought of. They have to really look outside the box that they're used to, because there is qualified women of color in tech. And you have to actually look and not just say you're trying, but actually do. Next, hire women of color in tech and invest in her. Don't just fulfill a quota. Make her success and growth a priority. Seek to create diverse mentors and sponsors who actually want to be part of the solution. Provide training that will allow her to network, advance, and enhance her career. Create a development path for women of color in tech who want to go into leadership and help her to grow and thrive. Most importantly, create pay equality. If you are a woman of color in tech, or even if you are a non woman of color in tech, look around, observe your work environment. Don't just be happy for your position look to mentor a woman of color in tech support her and let your company know if there's a qualified woman of color in tech that's a good fit companies that are diverse perform better they have engaged employees and they retain their employees develop Leaders in a workplace that has zero tolerance for implicit or explicit bias, microaggressions, and underrepresentation. When you hire a woman of color in tech, you will not only get a woman who will add value to your organization, but you will get an employee who is loyal and does her best and looks to encourage and support other women of color who will add value to your organization. Women of, of color have a different perspective. Our life experiences and unique worldviews allow us to solve problems. If you truly want to see diversity and inclusion in the tech industry, allow a woman of color to show up to work as her full and authentic self. I assure you that when you realize the benefits that women of color in tech present, and when she's not overlooked, you will find out that a woman of color would not only add value to your organization, but foster innovation. So I challenge you to take the blinders off and do things differently. Release the negative stereotypes that you have about women of color in tech. I assure you that if you hire a woman of color in tech and she's not overlooked, you will find a woman who her skills, her intellect, and her presence will show you that she is capable and qualified to do the job. I'm Trina L. Martin. I am the queen of equality in tech. I'm the CEO of Trina L. Martin International. I hope you enjoyed my talk. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that
0: features experts in a specific field of technology, sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields.
4: I'm Arit, and welcome to my lightning talk, The Open Source Plunge, Practical Strategies to Start Contributing. So a brief outline of what this talk is gonna cover. I will summarize my journey into um, open source. Um, I will talk about the benefits of open source participation, at least in my opinion. Um, I will uh, talk about how to identify well-maintained projects. And so you have the least amount of frustration getting started. And then I will end with a few tips for making your first pull requests. So I became a software engineer at 38. I'm a mom of two and I'm bootcamp educated. And when bootcamp uh, concluded, I really missed coding as part of a team. So my bootcamp, we had a cohort that started every week, and we were 10 engineers in my cohort. And so I felt very isolated after bootcamp wrapped up, and I decided to see if there was a way for me to continue coding with groups of people, and that's how I stumbled upon the website Code Triage. Um, and Code Triage allows you to see different open source projects, and you can filter by language or framework. And I identified a few but they were very difficult to get involved with for many reasons. Sometimes setting up the project locally was hard. I had so many errors. A lot of the project communities were not communicative. And so I would ask a question and it would take months to hear back. And it, w- it all felt very intimidating because I was brand new to coding. I had just graduated bootcamp. And so the forum project, which is um, the company I work for now, and we are completely open source, was my first successful um project that I got started uh getting involved into open source Um, the community was very responsive and my first PR was welcomed like very enthusiastically and so that did a lot to increase my confidence in participating in open source. Now, in my opinion, there are several benefits to open source participation, particularly for early career developers. Um, I find that open source closely approximates a real world work experience. And for early career developers, we tend to have me, myself and I like when we're coding our projects, we're judge, jury, and execution, right? We decide everything. But when you get involved in open source, you are assimilating into an existing project. And so going to the benefits of open source participation, the first is I think open source closely approximates a professional environment, which I think can be very helpful for early career developers. Typically, when we're building our personal projects, it's me, myself, and I, right, You decide what project, what code base, you're making all the decisions. But with open source, you are integrating into an existing project. And I think that requires a different set of skills that should be developed. And I think being able to show off your open source participation on your resume and your online profile can only help your career. Um, Another benefit of open source participation is you learn to consume technical documentation, either the documentation of the project itself or, The documentation of the languages or the frameworks that the project um, uses. Some other benefits are you learn how to communicate effectively in a professional manner. So communicating on technical topics, for example. Uh, I think open source participation also allows you to gain experience in tech stacks that are beyond your comfort zone. Uh, There's opportunity to belong to thriving ecosystems of tech professionals, which Of course, it's important when you think of networking and growing your career. And ultimately, I think open source participation helps us to make the world a better and more humane place. All right. So how do you identify well-maintained open source projects? Well, I think most... Well maintained projects have a detailed code of conduct right and so there's a standard of behavior that is expected of everyone involved in that project, and I think this is a sign that they care about how the maintainers and the contributors are treated, Um, I think, also organized, well-segmented documentation goes a long way to helping, especially beginning uh, people who are contributing for the first time to understand what the project is about and, and feel at home. I think another sign of a healthy open source project is frequent communication. I think maybe at least once or twice a week is a good benchmark, but you definitely want to stay away, in my opinion, from projects where the last comment was several months ago. I think healthy projects also have a robust triage and labeling system. So for example, you might see some, um, some, uh, some issues that are labeled good first issue or beginner friendly. And I think that's a sign that they're thinking about newcomers to the project. Um, in my opinion, projects that have robust test suites They have quality checks and they have some kind of continuous integration implemented. I think it shows that the maintainers care about avoiding non-breaking code, right? And and also ensuring that the um, contributors are writing maintainable code as well. Finally, I think if you can find a project that has some kind of community built around the project, and so maybe a Slack group or some other community, I think that also points to a healthier project. You've identified a project. What do you well Read the documentation at least twice. If they have a code of conduct, you need to understand the behavior expected of you. There may be several prerequisites that you need to go through before you start contributing. You wanna make sure you fulfill them all. And I think you also want to read whatever documentation they have around being a contributor. And I think that will help you to understand the conventions they follow and the workflow as well. Now you don't have to create a pull request to participate in a project initially. You can read through existing pull requests and you can join the communication in these pull requests, or you can, after you set the app up locally, if you discover issues in the app, you can create issues to clue people in that, hey, there's these bugs or there's these problems. And so your first contribution doesn't have to be an actual pull request. Another way to get involved or to start getting involved is to read through some merged pull requests. And so these are pull requests that have been merged into the code base. And you can read through them to kind of see, okay, what have other contributors been working on and kind of what is the workflow expected. Now, talking about your first, your first few pull requests, I wanna cover some tips. Go for low-hanging fruit, and in my opinion, the lowest-hanging fruit is to update the project's documentation. So in healthy projects, documentation is a living document. It's not like you, you do it once and you're done. And so while you're setting up the open source project locally, keep track of whatever errors or even unexpected things that you encounter. And keep those notes, and then when you're done, your first pull request can be to update the installation documentation with your experience or how you happen to solve the errors you came across. And I can tell you from experience that a lot of project maintainers love these kinds of PRs because it makes their documentation more robust. You also want to look for beginner-friendly issues like I mentioned before. They may be tagged beginner beginner friendly, good first issue, or newcomers, and you want to target those. You also want to choose whatever issues you choose to work on initially, make sure that they're small in scale, because you're still learning the code base, you're learning the processes and workflows, and so when you have a localized change that you're implementing, I think it helps with not becoming overwhelmed in the beginning. And finally, my last tip is to commit to seeing your pull request through. I think one of the things that frustrates open source project maintainers are ghosted pull requests. You cut the pull request and then you're gone. And so try not to ghost your PR. And if you need help or you need to ask questions, be bold in asking your questions. I think part of the ethos of open source is expecting that people will want to contribute that may not understand fully or may not have all the skills. And so for the most part, project maintainers are open to questions. So ask away. Now, I do want to talk about asking questions because that's one of the most common things that you'll probably be doing as you get involved in open source. And I think that there's a way to ask your questions that empower the hearers to help you better. And so when you ask your question, provide all related information in your question so that People who are answering you don't have to fish for this information. And you can use links, you can use images, and you can even use video to describe and contextualize your question. So I'm going to go through uh, a not-so-effective example, and then I'll cover a more effective example. So this is a less effective approach of asking a question. I get errors while trying to set my local environment up. Please help me. There's nothing wrong with this question, but I think it can be more detailed and you can empower the people who are going to help you more. And so to me, this is a better approach. Whenever I start my app locally, I get the error, port 9200, connection refused, and the app does not run. I have entered all necessary API keys and my fork is up to date with the main repository. Any thoughts and suggestions? Welcome, thanks. So what makes this question more effective in my opinion is you are contextualizing what your errors are and you're already letting them know what you've done and the steps that you've taken to solve the error. But of course the error still, still persists. And so this is giving enough context for people to um, be able to answer you and give you a more targeted answer as opposed to entering a back and forth fishing for more information. So in summary, I think open source participation can help either jumpstart or enrich your career in tech. And I think the work we do in open source participation supports useful work and useful organizations. Um, You need to take the time to identify healthier open source projects and in order to save headaches down the line or save you frustration and ensure a smoother open source experience. Lastly, you want to start small. You want to be receptive to feedback and you want to ask questions effectively and commit to seeing whatever work you embark on through to the end.
0: Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. Featured in Women Who Code Conversations is Jasmine Livingston, Head of Technology Program Management at Cash App and Sneha Saxena, Data Scientist at Grubhub. Women Who Code Career Nav featured Trina L. Martin, CEO of Trina L. Martin International. Women Who Code Talks featured Arit Amana, Senior Engineer at Forum. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.